This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. We have just finished a mini-series for Biosciences Consulting, and now we continue our journey into bioinformatics software. Joining me today is Johannes Kusta, Professor for Bioinformatics and Computational Oncology at the Institute for AI in Medicine at the University Medicine Essen. And the university name, I'm not sure I can pronounce the name of. Johannes, can you help me out? Okay, yeah, that's the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany. Excellent. Thank you. Actually, before I continue, let me say welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So our listeners may know you as the creator of SnakeMake, a workflow tool that enables scalable and reproducible data analysis in bioinformatics. For some history on how I think I know you, <laughs> we go back to 2019 when I saw that you were looking for someone to do some consulting work for SnakeMake, and I was able to arrange doing that through Stanford, although it took a really long time. I think I remember it took nine months to get that set up. And you can probably guess before that I was using SnakeMake. Does that sound right? Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. Johannes continues to be the benevolent dictator of SnakeMake, but our listeners probably don't know that your work extends beyond SnakeMake into Rust and machine learning and many other exciting algorithms and tools we are going to learn about today. So let's get started and let's start possibly at the beginning because there are still a lot of early career folks that are thinking about their direction and path. And it's fun to hear about where some of these well-established folks like yourself came from. Can you take us back to your training or when you got involved with computer science or bioinformatics and tell us why it stuck? Originally, when I, when I, let's say, decided about what to study, I was like hesitating whether I should study computer science or, or biology, actually. So I couldn't really decide. And uh, at school, I didn't have computer science in the, let's say, strict sense at all. So we had some course where we did things like Excel macros and so on, but nothing serious. So I, I really came to, let's say, that decision to to study computer science at some point and, and just, just tried it out. And it was, at the beginning, it was completely new for me, but yeah, I liked it a lot. And later on, like during my, let's say, later courses, I came into also, let's say, combining this with, with biology uh, and going for bioinformatics, actually. Yeah, then I did my my master thesis so in germany at that time it was called diploma thesis but it's it's analogously so and that i did in the max planck institute of molecular physiology uh, in dortmund and there i i kind of combined the two topics finally for for something really going into science and there i decided to also follow this route of researching within bioinformatics later on where and when did SnakeMake come to be? That was actually in my first year as a PhD student, where we basically started with doing some collaborations with people from, from outside the computer science faculty in Dortmund. And I used GNU Make, which probably all of you still know, which is like this famous tool from Richard Stallman, which is traditionally used for compiling 
programs like C, C++, and so on, but had at that time also a big lobby within bioinformatics for just composing data analysis workflows in a kind of reproducible way. But as some of you will know, it has certain shortcomings, like, I don't know, for example, that you can only define one output file per rule, and that you have this cryptic syntax, which leads to people usually putting some kind of cheat sheets below their make files in order to remind themselves of what they can do, how, and so on. And yeah, at that point, like I would say like after the first few months of doing research within my, my thesis work there, we had a brainstorming with my former boss there and a colleague uh, within the lab about how we actually would like to have a system for, for doing workflows and data analysis that is, uh, let's say, doing similar things to GNU Make, but more targeted towards you, what you need actually in data analysis and especially in bioinformatics. And out of that came kind of three different ideas, one from me, one from my professor and one from the colleague. And the weekend after I decided to, let's say, take the best out of the three ideas and just try to implement a prototype out of this. And this worked like over a weekend. And since Python is so easy to, to program and there are so many things you can, you can easily do with Python, the prototype was even workable after that weekend. So yeah, and then, then we had quickly many people in the lab who tried it out and contributed, like for example, Tobias Marshall, who some of you will know from the Telomer to Telomer project. He's now one of the driving forces there. And he was at that time a postdoc, or let's say as, as still a PhD student and about to finish actually. Yeah, he helped me a lot in getting getting the functionality that bioinformatics needs into SnakeMake and gave me a lot of advice there. And um, yeah, I basically took then from there on, let's say half a year, just focusing on getting SnakeMake into a functional state, including several rewrites uh, of the internal workings and also adjustments to the domain-specific language. And after that, we published it and it was very quickly adopted by many people. And I guess it was also because at that time there were no real alternatives. So there was GNU-Make, of course, then there was P-Rake and BPI, but they were all pretty niche and I think not a lot of people use them. And therefore there was really a market for, for a tool like that so that it got quickly so, so big. And I think at that time I also invested a lot of time in answering questions and solving bugs and issues, which of course also had the adoption of, of people. Wow, a weekend. That is that is amazing. I, I did not know that about SnakeMake. So you were bridging the role between software engineering and biologists or scientists. How did you think of yourself and your identity at that time? Good question. So at that time, I didn't think a lot about these things. I was just busy in getting my, my PhD thesis done. But uh, later on, my feeling was, especially when I when I learned more more things about bioinformatics, how research works there, and how people do their do their analysis and so on, I came to the conclusion that I always want to choose a path where I solve a problem by creating a tool for it. If there's no tool yet, and also maintaining that tool constantly and sustainably. So that is that is my approach here, and it, I think it developed at like during my thesis after the first or second year, and I've just went on like that from from then on. You mentioned that many people wanted to use it. So outside of your lab, I'm guessing you're talking about open source 
what was your thinking with respect to maybe putting it in, um, assuming some kind of repository and how it grew organically or not organically? Tell us about the journey of like Snakemake from code on your computer or maybe your lab servers into a project that someone else not in your lab could actually use. We immediately decided to, to make it open source under a very liberal license, MIT license, so that it can be adopted by virtually anybody, also especially by companies, which, which can help a lot with people power to contribute back and so on. And that was, I guess, one of the key factors so that there's basically nothing to worry about regarding licenses, that it's very easy to get and so on. At the beginning, it also had very little dependencies, I think virtually no dependencies at all. And remember, at that time, it was still not so super easy to install software like it's nowadays with Mamba and Conda and so on. And that was, I guess, also a factor. And then, of course, like making it available via one of these source code platforms. So at that time, Bitbucket was pretty popular and I chose that. Later on, you made me actually switch to GitHub, which was a great decision actually, because yeah, at that time, GitHub was, was like people, the community on GitHub was much more active and uh, the tooling around it is of course nowadays much, much better than on Bitbucket. So yeah, and as, as mentioned before, so key to the growth and adoption of SnakeMake was, was kind of 24 seven support by me. So at that time I had no children. I was focusing on my PhD thesis and I basically was also sitting in the evenings there answering bug reports and reviewing pull requests and so on. So yeah, that, that was, was it. And then a second factor is of course, like my colleagues and my boss. So they have a tremendous part in, in getting snake make popular. So. Uh, my my professor at that time, Sven Rahman, he's really has always been into open source software and following a similar strategy. And he, he promoted it a lot among his colleagues. And that, of course, helped with the adoption. And, and then the usual things like going to conferences, talking with people, talking with other PIs and so on, getting getting people interested in that. Indeed, having an open source project like that is an entirely other job. So now you are notably, congratulations, you graduated a while ago, actually, but you're a professor and now you're a dad. So your your responsibilities and your role has changed quite a bit. How has your role changed over time? For example, how do you interact with the SnakeMake community and working on SnakeMake now? And is it different than it was before? Good question. So I think it it is, so the interaction, if it happens, is the same as before, although happening through different channels, of course, like, of course, not, not anymore going via and uh, talking via Google groups and so on. So now these things happen via discord or, or GitHub, but, uh, I would say, uh, interaction happens less frequently. And of course I'm a bit sad, but I just like the day just has 24 hours and I have so many projects to maintain and then also need to supervise my PhD students. And of course I need the time for my, my family and especially my kids. So I would wish that I would be faster, for example, in, in solving issues and pull requests myself. But luckily, the community around SnakeMake is so big that often other people can help with that and help each other and so on. And more and more people also solve bugs by themselves, creating pull requests, and then I just need to review them and so on. Yeah, in that sense... It has changed a bit in the sense of frequency, but the quality, if I come to review or discuss with users, I guess it's the same. It's just 
I just don't have as much time as I would like to have for it. But this is like gradually moving over towards other shoulders on the in the community. And uh, with now, just, just as a spoiler, I guess you will talk about that later with me, the modularization approach for SnakeMake 8, this will be even easier because we can hand over the maintenance of certain plugins entirely to other people so that there's less maintenance burden for me as well. That was my next question. Uh, if to what extent you want to share, what can people look forward to for the future of Snakemake in terms of the software, but also the community? Lots of answers to this question. So first of all, regarding the community, maybe also I should share this here. I, I have an open position for uh, actually a permanent position for a postdoc. And that person will also take over large parts of the SnakeMake maintenance. So I'm still searching for the ideal candidate there. And of course, I would be happy to receive applications. You can find them, the job offer on my homepage. And in that sense, the, the maintenance and the interaction in the community will probably be less centered around me in the future, but maybe at least it will have a second major maintainer. And then apart from that, Regarding regarding the future plans for SnakeMake itself and the development, the most important item is, is SnakeMake 8. And actually, I have to thank you, Vanessa, for bringing this idea up, which uh, was mentioned before a couple of, I think it was last year, by some Dutch PhD students who had a project, I think it was, it were master students who had a project on, let's say, improving upon SnakeMake and they were thinking about modularizing SnakeMake. And you had the same idea this year and this made me finally start working on this together with you. And this will introduce huge changes to SnakeMake and that will all come in SnakeMake 8. So we started with modularizing all the execution backends of SnakeMake, so cluster, cloud execution, and so on. And modularizing, I mean that each backend becomes its own Python package. And that has several advantages. First of all, we can minimize the dependencies of SnakeMake. If you just want to install SnakeMake, for example, for local execution, you don't have to install all these additional stuff with that. Uh, so it becomes less less heavy dependency-wise. And second, the maintenance um, is improved because, as mentioned, we can, let's say, handle or, or maintain certain certain execution backends, not ourselves self anymore, but we can hand that over, for example, to, to Google, Amazon, uh, and so on, and certain other teams. So the advantage of that is that we have less of a maintenance burden. And secondly, it's also easier to test. So uh, because, for example, the, the Google Cloud backend or Amazon backends require credentials for, for the cloud services to, uh, to be tested, and probably some of you will know that such credentials mean that you have to kind of give them your credit card details. And in theory, there's the risk of uh, running into trouble there because tests can, let's say, go crazy and, and waste a lot of resources there. And I would ideally like the companies to take that risk on their own if they want to provide such a plugin. And I hope that we can come to a, a solution with the companies in that regard. And but this is only the start. We we currently uh, or I uh, have just started today actually to also modularize other parts of SnakeMake. So for example, the remote storage uh, backends of SnakeMake also targeting things like S3, uh, Google Storage, FTP, HTTPS, Dropbox, Zenodo, and so on. So all of these will also become plugins for the very same reasons. And apart from that, during this let's say 
plugin work, I also realized that we need to refresh and improve the API of SnakeMake. So that has also been done already. Um, so SnakeMake has now, uh, it always like had this like historically grown, crowded internal API, which rarely people use because usually people just interact via the command line, but still some people use the API and it was always, I was always embarrassed about the status of that API. And now it's a really super modern data class based uh, modular API that is very clean and clear, uses Python type annotations and so on. So this has also improved a lot. So running SnakeMake programmatically also has become much easier now. And then finally, I also want to use this opportunity of releasing SnakeMake 8 by deprecating certain features or, or removing certain features that have been deprecated before. So to make the, the language more streamlined and more convenient to use sometimes also. And at that same time, I plan, although I don't know yet whether that will come immediately with SnakeMake 8 or with a later release, I plan to separate the language from the executable of SnakeMake in order to have the ability to define the language version you need in the workflow, but still run it with multiple different SnakeMake executables that are compatible with that language. So that will increase the uh, maintainability of, of workflows and sometimes, most often, I guess, remove the need to adapt to new SnakeMake versions within workflows. So it will also simplify for us to deprecate features and so on. So overall, I think the, the entire ecosystem is professionalized a lot with that release and uh, made more modern. I am so excited for this work and I'm I'm finishing up some experiments for a talk coming up. Then I should be able to dive into sort of my part of working on this too. And to give some background on where I came from with this. So I've been developing for SnakeMake for some years now, usually adding or working on different executors. So that would be like an API in, in Google Cloud, for example. And I, so let me, actually, we can talk a little bit about the design. So when you use SnakeMake, there's a command line client. So you're in a terminal and you're in a folder that has a snake file, which is that make file equivalent, which is abstractly like your recipe for your workflow. This client has an entry point in the SnakeMake software in this main module that parses the arguments. But if you looked at that original design, it was just like this huge thing, like every little parameter that you wanted to pass through to the executor had to be a new flag. I had these moments so many times where I'm, you know, adding more flags and then the flags basically get passed through many different functions internally. So the DAG and the scheduler, ultimately to the workflow and then the executor. And it just, it started to kind of make me feel uncomfortable. Even when I wasn't a very good programmer, I was like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. This isn't a good idea. And it finally came to a head. And that's when I opened the issue. I was like, we need to do, we need to do something about this because this is getting unwieldy. And it is so cool that it's becoming a reality. And yeah, I'm I'm definitely very excited for the future of SnakeMink. Yeah, I totally agree. So yeah, I always hated that as well. Like it's exactly what you described now, and I just just never had the time to to try it and take it uh, like improve it. And yeah, I'm so happy that you forced me to to do it now, because this is this is feeling much better now. Although I actually have to say that the last four weeks I basically did nothing else than refactoring SnakeMake, but yeah, it was needed. <laughs> That totally happens. And here's a question. So this happens to me a lot. I will make, I make, I write a lot of code and, and make a lot of projects. And it usually is the case that 
I look at something I've done previously and I absolutely hate it. Or maybe, maybe that's a strong word. Maybe I look at it and I said, oh, I don't like the design. I'm going to refactor it. Just in the past couple of days, actually, I refactored a Kubernetes operator that the original design I liked. And but at some point I said, no, this is wrong. And I'm going to over two days, I'm going to write like 7000 lines of code and not sleep. But but then after that, I'll be have you found in your experience that over time, as you look back at your old work, you tend to focus on the things that you don't like about it? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have the same experience. And I think it's it's natural and every developer has that at some point. So it's it's a mixture of different different uh, factors, I guess. So one is of course if a software is as old as SnakeMake, it's and comes from your early days as a professional, you have some some just some programming errors in there or or non-optimal code because you didn't knew better. But then later on, if you're already like experienced, you still have the situation where, especially with big projects, where you quickly get something done in a not optimal way, because maybe not even you know that it's not optimal, but you just don't overlook the entire code base anymore because it's so huge. And then you do things in one little niche of the code and without the big picture, you miss that actually there is a much better way to do that. And I guess that happens a lot, especially with big projects. And it's just unavoidable to have some bigger rewrites at some point, I guess. So for SnakeMake, this is now, I think, the third big rewrite after after two rewrites, like in the first and the second year, and now the, the third one. And hopefully it's the final one, but you never know, right? <laughs> Undoubtedly, it is not, and that is okay. <laughs> This, this is also really interesting to talk about because, so I know some developers that want to, for example, go into a meeting and they want to spec out a design and write it down perfectly before doing anything. And I think that's great. I, I respect that approach, but I, I find that for me, I almost need to do those sort of messier first implementations and then the rewrites because that's part of the design process. Like there's something that I will not see unless I do those first rewrites that that I didn't go and write down a priori, if that sort of makes sense. So like this, this process that we go through of creating software, letting it kind of simmer for a while, seeing the problems, and then going back and doing those rewrites, I feel like that's part of the design process. Maybe not for everyone, but for a lot of us, I think. Yeah, I, I think so as well. So for me, that works also best. And in fact, that is also similar with scientific writing. For example, if you write your thesis, if you if you want to make every sentence perfect before writing it, you will never really start. So you just need to start and refine later on. And I think it's similar with software and writing. Totally agree. Perfection is the enemy of the good, I think they say. Speaking of papers, so there is a kind of rolling snake make paper in a journal called F1000 Research, I think. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about this journal? Because it's a little non-traditional and why you chose it for snake make? Sure. So when when I wanted to publish the second snake make paper, I actually wanted it to be the last, let's say, entire resource on snake make in terms of published papers. So I, I didn't want to have multiple snake make papers coming out like every few years or so because 
my feeling is that sometimes that can be misleading. So for example, before publishing that paper, we only had this old bioinformatics application note from 2012, I think. And that led to all kinds of misunderstandings about SnakeMake for individual people. So for example, some people thought SnakeMake is just bioinformatics because it's published in bioinformatics. Also at that time, of course, the, the feature set was very, very minimal compared to today's feature set of SnakeMake. So sometimes people just checked the paper and saw, well, okay, it can do this, but it can't do that. And obviously it could already do that, but it's just uh, in the documentation and not in the paper. So I wanted to have a paper that will always be up to date. And second, I wanted to have a paper that is not immediately tied to bioinformatics in terms of the journal, but instead something broader, something more towards any kind of scientific dif discipline. And F1000 was just the best fit. So it has lots of lots of different subsections also in containing physics and, and other, other disciplines. And, and most importantly, it has this versioning uh, of papers. So that means that even after the review process, you can submit new versions to them. And then the editors decide whether the modifications are so minor that it's just accepted immediately or whether it goes through a second review. Yeah, by that, it was like just the perfect fit. And the second aspect is about how the how the paper is written. So we also had a similar discussion like that on, on Twitter some days ago. You know that, Vanessa. So the paper is written in a way that we don't compare the features of SnakeMake with other workflow management systems. So we don't have a feature table or feature matrix. And that is actually intentional because, you know, the field moves very fast and such a table can only be outdated after a few months at least. And apart from that, it can also only be subjective because of course I'm not an expert in all the workflow management systems around there. And I will get certain things wrong if I try to parse the documentation and manuscripts of the other workflow management systems. So I decided that it would be better to have a manuscript that only describes SnakeMake and maybe puts it in context of the other workflow management systems in terms of the approach. So for example, that it's based on a domain specific language, similar to that, that, and that workflow management system, and not primarily based on a graphical user interface and things like that. But I didn't want to compare features like oh, saying something like SnakeMake has this feature, but the others don't have that or vice versa and so on, because as mentioned, that can only be subjective and outdated quickly. And actually I tried more of the journals than F1000 before. And none of the other journals really allowed me to do that. So they all wanted to have this comparison in there and it just doesn't fit for workflow management systems because the field is just moving too fast. The feature sets are too big to capture them as a single person or even as a team. And therefore F1000 was the only solution. So I'm happy to, to be there now. And I must say that the, the, the whole process of editing and review and so on, that is very modern and streamlined and works very well. So for example, we could immediately submit from, from Overleaf. So some of you will know that this LaTeX portal for, for writing collaboratively has a submission functionality directly to F1000. It's very convenient in terms of interfacing with the, like interacting with the submission interface, inserting author details, selecting reviewers and so on. So all of that is very modern and well-made and uh, really happy to be there now with the paper. 
this is really timely advice for me because I have a piece of infrastructure that I just wrote a paper for and I have no idea where to put it. And a big part of it is, so I also learned the lesson with feature comparison tables. I wrote the first draft and most of the meat of the original singularity paper. And I very naively put a comparison table. It made sense, but a lot of people were very unhappy with me because of that table. And in retrospect, for the same reasons that you cited, that features get outdated and they change and it just largely makes people upset with you. That's not something that I am going to do again. Yeah, agree. So we're talking about publishing software. And it sounds like it is more challenging to publish software than to publish just sort of traditional research. The F1000 research as an example of a journal that is good for this, that's great advice. Do you have other tips for folks that are out there trying to publish their software or infrastructure or for research applications? I think there are there are some things that one should take care of when when making a software available in order to get people to use it and to try it out and one of that is the ability to install it easily so for example when a software is written in python i want it to be a python package i don't want to have a loose collection of scripts that i have to download manually or clone from github and and run them in the same working directory or so it needs to be portable it needs to be installable via the usual package management systems then especially for bioinformatics ideally it should be inside of bioconda so as some of you will know, I'm the founder of Bioconda, so this is a bit subjective, but I think there's also an objective part in this because Bioconda is really currently the backbone of reproducible software installation in bioinformatics, and it has so many downloads, I think now over 190 million and overall package downloads. So basically all the major tools are in there and getting your tool into, into Bioconda makes it easier for people to include into workflows, to install it manually and so on. So it will simplify the adoption. And then just, just something personal maybe. So often when I decide like which tool to use for a particular task, so for example, if I want to do a data analysis and I need to find a tool that does a certain task within that analysis. For example, I don't know, I'm just making up something, a tool to find T-cell receptors in, in a sample that has been sequenced with next generation sequencing or so. So what I what I then do is that I usually scan Bioconda for, for certain keywords. And next, I when I found something, I check the GitHub page if it has one. Ideally, it has one. Otherwise, I'm already put back a bit because it feels like, well, it's probably not that long living. So for example, if it's just a custom homepage or so, if I don't find a Git repository, that also already feels a bit awkward. And then usually when I check the Git repository, ideally on GitHub, I, I look at things like stars and forks, contributions by others, the last commits. So like how frequently is it is it updated? And to be honest, I actually also always look at like the readme file, whether it's formatted well, whether it has like the usual batches. You you often see like these colorful little little things at the at the beginning of the readme, which say like, I don't know, CI testing has passed, code coverage is that and that, the package is available on PyPy or some other ecosystem specific package manager and so on. Yeah, all of these little things are important. And the, the, the purpose of all of these checks I do manually is to, to find out whether I, I have a sustainable solution in front of me or whether it's just 
something that somebody has implemented once for, for example, a paper or a thesis and which has been abandoned afterwards. And I don't want to use software that has been abandoned uh, when, I, when I already start to use it or will be abandoned sooner or later, because that just gives me trouble in the future then. So yeah, this is kind of what I would advise to ensure when, when publishing a software. And of course, all these things should be mentioned and linked out already in the paper. There needs to be a paper, of course. I also check the papers for the methodology and whether it makes sense. But if the paper is just for itself and just has no non-working links or linking to some custom homepage, which can disappear in the future, so this is always generating a bad impression, which if there are alternatives might drive me to a different tool then. This is really good advice, all of these hints for sustainable work. And we definitely see cases like that also in high performance computing. You hear of something, some famous software, and then you go off searching for it. And you go to a website that looks like it was made in like 1994, you know, with, you know, no, no style, just like headers and black text. And then you, you're taken to download it to an FTP page and all of the red flags in your head are going off because you know, yeah. this is just a, a bad path to go down. So I'm glad that we, we can talk about these. I think sometimes a lot of what we learn over time in terms of like, these are the things that I look for, for sustainable software. When I'm looking at the software, when I'm looking for a paper, we have them in our head, but we don't articulate them and we don't publicly share them. And I think it's really good to talk about them because it, what is obvious to us is not always obvious to other people. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about Snakemake. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. We do something on the show called, Why Did You Build It? And I noticed, well, actually I know this about you. You work on a ton of projects. You already said two of them. So Bioconda and Snakemake. I'm going to rapid fire or attempt to rapid fire list some of the other ones that I found. And for one of these projects, I want you to answer a few questions and you can choose which one you like. What is the project? Who did you build it for? And of course, the main question, why did you build it? Okay, so so we'll start with Snakemake, Bioconda, Valorasi, Raptor, Murfish Tools, Rust Bio, Alpaca, Peanut, all capital letters, Libmodologic, TR Miner, and Protein Hyper Networks. And of course, if there's another one that I didn't name, you can talk about that too. So tell us for one of those projects, what is the project for, who did you build it for, and why did you build it? Okay, I'll, I'll take Valorasi Raptor. So maybe first of all, first about the name. So I guess you know the dinosaur from Jurassic Park, the Velociraptor, and that's just a play with the names. So Velociraptor is a tool that searches for variant loci in genomes. So that's why we had this name, and which is of course resembling uh, the Velociraptor, and it's a raptor because it searches for these. What do I mean with that? So the purpose of this tool is to find basically mutations, so genomic mutations that are, for example, leading to certain diseases in, in patients that have, for example, I don't know, some syndromes or cancers or whatever. And we're in a clinical context, we want to, want to understand what drives these diseases from a genome perspective. And the purpose of this tool is to find these so-called variants or mutations in the genome. And for that purpose, it uses input from a technology that is called genome sequencing, or, uh, or sometimes also called next generation or third generation genome sequencing. 
And that technology works by, let's say, chopping the DNA in your cells into little pieces, of course, not in the living cells, but in, in some sample that has been taken before. And these little pieces are then, let's say, aligned to the known, for example, human reference genome, or if it's from a different species, the, the genome from that species. And the purpose of a tool like Velociraptor, and there are many other tools that do similar things, is to find within these aligned little sequences on top of this large sequence that is also for a computer scientist, just a text over the alphabet ACGT. So on top of this sequenced and aligned little text pieces, it tries to find for each position whether that position is containing a mutation in the particular investigated sample or not. And that is actually a statistical problem and Velociraptor is a tool that strives to solve this statistical problem in the most possible comprehensive way, involving all uncertainties that can, that can occur during the, during the measurement process, but also during the in silico data analysis process. And apart from this aim to, let's say, capture all the uncertainty and summarize that in some kind of Bayesian statistical model that gives you, in, in the end, a, a probability, so for the scientists a posterior probability apart from that it aims also be also to be very generic so with this search for mutations you can run into various different scenarios whether you're in the clinic or um, in biology or in general in life science research and these scenarios span from looking at the mutations of an individual patient towards looking at mutations in a family of a patient and the parents and maybe the, the siblings and so on towards um, having probably multiple samples from the same individual, like, I don't know, some, some healthy blood sample from a patient and tumor sample and maybe a sample from a metastasis and so on. And what nowadays precision medicine wants to decipher in that case is like, how is the the journey of these mutations across these different samples, where are the driving mechanisms of the disease, and how can we help the patients with, for example, targeted therapies against certain mutations that are found in difference of these samples. And the idea of Velociraptor is to have a unified statistical model that can capture, first of all, all these different uncertainties that are involved in the measurement and the analysis, but also that can capture all these different scenarios. So whether you have a single sample of a patient, whether you have multiple samples from different time points uh, or different localizations within the patient, like different tumors and metastasis and so on. And the, the, the Velociraptor is actually the first model that is so generic that it can model all of these things with the same statistical approach. And it can also handle lots of different types of evidences in terms of how those DNA snippets are actually assessed and measured and so on. And by that, it unifies lots of different individual approaches that have, have been developed before into one statistical uh, approach that now can handle all of these. And uh, that is kind of the purpose of this. And this allows us in our daily work here at the hospital to be very flexible in terms of where we apply this tool. So it has been already applied in lots of scenarios, like, for example, in, in precision medicine uh, for oncology, but also, for example, during the, the pandemic, the very same model has been applied to quantify virus lineages, SARS-CoV-2 virus lineages, and, and detect whether there are new mutations occurring and so on and so forth. 
So yeah, that is kind of the idea behind Velociraptor. And maybe I can add that it has been written in Rust. So since we are also talking about programming and programming languages here, and it's my second big project in Rust um, after I started with Rust Bio 2015. And I'm really happy about it. So the code base of Velociraptor is huge, but it's extremely maintainable because of Rust, because of the guarantees that Rust offers at compile time, like having, having built-in memory safety and threat safety, and also the strictness of the compiler then, that ensures a very high code quality so that uh, there are little, let's say, non-idiomatic pieces in the code just due to the compiler. So yeah, this is the story of Velociraptor in a sense. I love the name for what the software does. I love the dinosaur reference, five stars. I absolutely love dinosaurs. And I'm glad you mentioned Rust Bio because I think you started an initiative that was badly needed. And I'd really like to see the same kind of initiative happen in other communities that tend to have software that's getting older, that needs that kind of re-engagement and re respiritization, that is not a word, I just made it up, but of the community and of the software to have more modern, you know, safer means of, of using it, I suppose. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So especially in science, I think Rust is very important because of this mentioned strictness of the compiler and the guarantees, you in general get better code quality. And this is very helpful in the setting where, for example, PhD students are in a lab for three years or four years and then disappear. And then the question is who maintains the software? And yeah, so especially in bioinformatics, we have this problem that lots of software lies around unmaintained, which is something you sometimes can't avoid, but at least with Rust, you have to some degree a higher quality of the software, less bugs and so on. So in a sense, this the strict compiler shifts the development time from debugging, where you are spending most of the time with interpreted languages towards just getting stuff to compile. Of course, it can still contain certain bugs, logical bugs and so on, but all the technical bugs, like all these traditional stuff you get in C, C++ code, like segmentation faults and so on, all those disappear. And at the same time, the, the whole ecosystem around Rust, like the, the package manager, the dependency management, and so on. This is so much simpler than for other high-performance languages, so that it's very easy to get things right and get things done in the, in the correct and idiomatic way in Rust. And that helps a lot to improve the quality and, and lower the maintenance burden later on in, in, let's say, later stages of the lifetime of the software. Very well stated. So we are coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. I somehow have many friends that are in Germany, and I consistently hear really good things. Can you tell us what you like about living and working in Germany? Several things. So first of all, probably the most important thing, you have lots of holidays in Germany, 30 days per year. So I remember when I was working in Boston, the Dana-Farber, that was much less. I don't remember the exact number, but it's sometimes something about 10-ish or 12 or whatever. So that is very nice. And if you have kids, it's also very convenient in Germany because childcare is not that expensive. So just a few hundred euros per month. And then later on, it becomes even for free, like if the child is bigger. And yeah, so the, all these things are, are nice. So for me personally, it's of course also the family itself. So like my wife is a primary school teacher here, all the grandparents live here and so on. So that is of course an important factor. 
I don't know what else. So I also liked a lot working somewhere else. So for example, I also loved it in the Netherlands and in uh, US as well. So yeah, but most of it is probably the, the holidays and the childcare, to be honest. Sounds good to me. So when you aren't leading your group or working on software, what do you like to do in your free time? And I, I just put that in quotes, your free time. <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of things. Sports. So I love to play badminton with my son, my seven-year-old son. Of course, also with, with adults. Soccer. I play a lot of soccer with other uh, fathers. And reading, reading books, especially science fiction books and fantasy I'm a huge Harry Potter fan and Lord of the Rings and so on. Of course, I also love TV shows, all kinds of stuff, science fiction, fantasy, drama series, and so on. So, yeah, and I don't know, hiking. I love hiking. I love swimming. That's it, basically. Johannes, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. I am really excited about the, the future of Snakemake and the work to be done. And just in general and on behalf of the community, I want to say that we are so grateful for you and for Snakemake and looking forward to these future exciting adventures. Thank you so much for having me here.